Okay, here we go. Isaiah chapter 14. And as you're turning there, I just want to remind you that uh, we're in a section. Uh, it's the second major section of the book, which we have just called the Judgment of the Nations. Uh, that's what's going on in uh, the chapters that we're going to look at today, uh, all the way through chapter 23. And uh, so, so let's orient ourselves. The book of Isaiah is a book inspired by God, written through the prophet Isaiah, mainly targeted at the southern kingdom of Judah, who needs to repent, come back to God, or judgment is coming. We've already seen that the northern kingdom is going to go into captivity with the Assyrians. Uh, Judah is quite literally surrounded by the Assyrian Empire, and uh, there's all sorts of temptation going on. We've seen King Ahaz being tempted to side with the enemy in order to uh, bolster his military ability against other threats. Um, we've seen people uh, turn away from God. They're turning to the gods of their neighbors. They're turning to uh, other pagan rituals and deities and, and the high places and, and the Ashtaroth and, and the Baal and all this sort of thing going on instead of to the Lord. So the book of Isaiah is largely calling people back to uh, faith in the Lord. Judgment is coming. And yet we see this promise all throughout the book that God will indeed save and spare a portion of his people and that the coming Messiah and the coming king uh, will indeed come from that family and uh, do his work of redemption. So it's, it's a great book. We've kind of talked about the first part, which focuses on Judah. The second part that we're in now talks about these other surrounding nations because uh, Judah is the one who is going after these other nations and siding with them. So if you think about that, what God is doing is he's saying, look, let me tell you what's going to happen to all these people that you're trusting in. Let me tell you about all these people and the gods that they're worshiping. Let me tell you what the result is going to be for that. And, and that's, that's sort of a way of God saying, do you still want to trust in them knowing that this is what will happen? Um, but this also serves as, as a really helpful reminder that God will right every wrong. He will bring about justice uh, as we look around the world and we see many things that are not right, that uh, nonetheless God will... Uh, bring justice upon all of humanity. Now, uh, the nations that we're going to think about here uh, are listed between chapter, really chapter 13, all the way through chapter 23, and we see them on this map. We see Egypt, we see Damascus, we see Babylon, we see Assyria, and in fact, this one is a little bit easier to see because it it, uh, it kind of removes some of the clutter, the map clutter there. And uh, these are the nations that we're going to hear about in the next few chapters, okay? And today we're just going to look at a few of them. The last one we'll look at is Tyre in chapter 23. We've already seen Babylon, and uh, we're going to look at Assyria and Damascus and Philistia and uh, some others today, okay? So if you fail geography like me, and we're going to talk about all these places, each one of these you can see shows you where they are located on the map, and uh, this one uh, gives you a little more detail so you can kind of see, okay... Tyre is right here, Sidon is here, Damascus, the capital city of, of uh, Syria. Of course, Egypt is down here, Ethiopia even further down. Uh, Assyria is this whole empire. Um, okay, so that's, that's where we're going, and that's uh, going to occupy the content of our study 
uh, in the near future. Now, uh, I, well, you'll, you'll see what we're going to do with this. Okay. So first of all, let me get you oriented. There's a pattern. One of the things in a big book of the Bible, especially the poetic books, is you can get bogged down in the detail and you open up your Bible reading plan and you start reading and you go, what on earth is going on? I don't know who's, you know, what are they talking about and where are we talking about and who's this and who's that? And that's because like anything else, you can't just parachute into the Bible and, and have immediate orientation. You have to, you have to know something about where am I reading? What's going on? What's been going on in the context? So let me, let me be your, your tour guide here. Okay. What we're going to see from chapter 13 to chapter, excuse me, chapter 30, I said 23, it actually goes all the way through 30, um, is what we're going to see is um, this little term, the oracle. And, uh, and if you like to circle stuff or highlight stuff, I would encourage you as you read this section of Isaiah, highlight that little word oracle, underline that little word oracle, because what that's doing, that's your outline. Every time you see the word oracle, that's your marker that we're, t- we're starting a new section. The oracle concerning this nation. And then you're going to see the oracle concerning this nation and the oracle concerning this nation. It, it's creating chapters in the history of what's happening here. And you say, but wait a minute, Pastor Keith, that doesn't line up with the chapters in my Bible. I know, I know. So don't pay attention to the chapter divisions in your Bible as much as you're paying attention to that little word oracle. That word oracle means the utterance. It, it's a prophetic word that is coming against these surrounding nations. Now notice, you're going to see them in chapter 13, 14, 15, 17, 19, 21, three times in 21, 22, 23, and 30. So those are the main divisions. So there is a logic here. There is an organization. I know it doesn't feel like it when you're reading it sometimes. But if you can just mark that little word oracle, that will help you to get through that section and uh, have a little bit of navigational uh, help along the way. Okay, make sense? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a couple of these uh, initially here. So let's look first at uh, Philistia. Okay, so this is in chapter 14, starting in verse 29. And remember, we have seen a judgment on Babylon. That's chapter 13. We've seen a judgment on Assyria. That's chapter 14. And now we see 14, verse 29, judgment on Philistia. You say, where's that? Well, let's go back to our map. Where's Philistia? right here okay so if we go back here we can see it's right there on the coast south of Tyre a little bit inland Uh, so and you'll notice um, these little landmarks here what's this little little thing here what is that that's the Dead Sea and what's that little blip right there that's the Sea of Galilee okay it's it's small but you you get oriented here bodies of water are great navigational aids in geography and maps and flying, right? So you've got Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee. What goes between them and connects them? The Jordan River, okay? So here's Philistia right there, right on the the west side of the Sea of Galilee. So that's what we're talking about. It's a city. And uh, remember, you got the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrian Empire is threatening all of these little countries, all of these little cities. And uh, so we're going to hear about what's going to happen to Philistia first. Chapter 14, look back at your Bible, verse 29. Do not rejoice, O Philistia, all of you, because the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root a viper will come out, and its fruit will be a flying serpent This is interesting. Those who are most helpless will eat, and the needy will lie down in security. 
I will destroy your root with famine and it will kill off your survivors. Okay, so, so look at this. Um, verse 29, do not rejoice because the rod that struck you is broken. Now, what is the rod that has struck Philistia that is now broken? What was the threat that is now no longer a threat? I mean, you can look at your notes, but I'd rather you just look at your Bible and think for a minute. Ahaz. How do we know it's Ahaz? That's right. Yeah, you see the, the previous verse, right? Verse 28. In the year that King Ahaz died, this oracle came. What was Ahaz wanting to do? Remember, remember what was he tempted to do back in chapter 7? What's that? An alliance. Right, against Samaria and against Damascus, right? Which would have been captured in that region. So Ahaz inciting with Assyria is a threat to those other nations, isn't he? Well, now Ahaz dies, and so some of these other nations are going, yay! Right? And Isaiah says, um, don't do that. Because the rod that struck you is broken... But from the serpent's root, a viper will come out. Who did Ahaz side with? What was his alliance that Daryl mentioned? With Assyria. So just because Ahaz dies, doesn't remove the threat of who? The Assyrian nation. And as it will come about historically, the Assyrian nation will be the ones who come and destroy uh, the city of Philistia. Okay, so that's the warning here. Don't rejoice over Ahaz's death because Syria is still a real threat. Look at verse 31. Wail, O gate. Cry, O city. Melt away, O Philistia. All of you. For smoke comes from the north and there is no straggler in his ranks. The smoke from the north would be a reference to the nation of uh, Syria. Now, how then will one answer the messengers of the nation that the Lord has found Zion and the afflicted of his people will seek refuge in it? Now, that's interesting. So he says, you don't need to relax a whole lot because Assyria is still coming against you and Assyria will still destroy you. But what else is going on? What's that last little verse about? Who will take refuge in Zion? That's right. The poor of his people. And and so we're thinking here again about God's people. We're thinking about the Israelites. And so Isaiah is announcing to Philistia, don't get too excited because the king of Judah died because Assyria is still a threat against you and God will redeem his people, won't he? God will one day work so that his people, as afflicted as they might be, as poor as they might be, will take refuge once again in him. So what do you see? There's our themes again, right? There's the themes of the book of Isaiah. The threat of judgment and the reminder that God's going to keep a remnant uh, and and save a portion of his people. So there it is again in, in miniature, okay? So on your notes there, the people of Judah will seek refuge in the Lord, not through an alliance with Philistia. See, they're thinking, well, hey, you know, Ahaz has died and we're going to take over. And no, Assyria is going to come and destroy them. 
and God is going to once again be the refuge for his people. Now, why is this here? Because you say, well, this, this is a, a message for Felicia. It is. But remember, this is mainly a prophecy to the nation of Judah. What was a constant temptation of the nation of Judah throughout this time in history? What were they constantly being tempted to do? Yes. Yes. They were tempted to put their confidence of security in someone other than Yahweh. Okay? Now, are you ever tempted to put your hope of security in something or someone other than the Lord? You see how relevant this is? It's the same old stuff. You say, well, we don't have Philistia and we don't have Assyria. I know. And, and, and do we have uh, enemies foreign and domestic? Yes, we do. Not like this, but yes, we do. But that doesn't mean every day we aren't tempted to look to something for security. It can be political. It can be medical. It can be our well-being. It can be financial. It can be relational. We can make all sorts of foolish choices when we don't let God and His Word inform where our security is supposed to rest. In fact, that's a really good test. I know this is a, it's a, it's an application of what we're looking at here, but it's important. That's an important test. As you're spending time with the Lord every day, as you're kind of evaluating your walk with God and all that, ask yourself this question regularly. Where am I really putting my hope of security? Where am I really putting that? I mean, the, the things that, that we American Christians would probably be, I mean, those are going to be a, a, a pretty short list, right? I'm going to put a lot of stock in medical issues and health. I'm going to put a lot of stock in finances and investments. I'm going to put a lot of stock in relationships. And again, are we thankful to the Lord for those things as, as kind gifts of his grace? Sure we are. Those are not bad things. It's, those are good things to be involved in. But, but, but here's the thing. What happens to me when God takes one of those things away? What happens to me when one of those things changes. Well, at that point you find out, was I enjoying it as a good gift? Or was I resting on it as a God? You, you see the difference? Uh, David Pallison, who's with the Lord now, had a gr- great classic quote. He said that what fallen people are prone to do is to take God's good gifts and turn them into God's. Right? God never intended... As wonderful as your family might be, God never intended for your security to rest entirely on your family. It's a good gift, but it's a bad God, right? God wanted, and everyone in this room is blessed financially. Everyone in this room. I mean, all we have to do is fly to any third world country, and we will see immediately that everybody in this room is blessed financially. That's a a kind gift of God's provision. Makes a good gift. It makes a bad God. Stock market crash. Boom. Ah, right? Um... We know we know where our treasure is by what happens to us when we lose it, right? So anyway, I, I think this is a common human struggle. The Philistians struggled with it. The Israelites struggled with it. And we American Christians in Granbury, Texas in 2019 continue to struggle with it. Um, let's enjoy God's good gifts and be thankful for them. But let's not turn them into gods. We don't rest 
fully and entirely in terms of our security on them. And you know what? I think as we get older, that becomes a little bit easier to see, doesn't it? When we're younger and we're capable and we can conquer the world and you get a little older and it's like your body doesn't work so well, right? Things don't go quite as planned and you realize, you know what? All those things that I thought were going to make it are not things you can rely on, ultimately. Okay. So back to the text. Now that's a good takeaway for us. Let's talk about Moab. This is an extended section all the way to chapter 15 into chapter 16. Now, now look at this. Let's just walk through this together. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. The oracle concerning Moab. And when you see the word oracle, what should that do? What's that? New section. Did you, did you note it? New section. The oracle. Okay, we're not talking about Philistia anymore. We're talking about another nation. Well, where's, where's Moab? Well, let's look back at our map. And Moab, where did we go? Yeah, right right here. Yep, right here. Okay, and so if we go back to uh, this one, it's kind of down in this area. It's more of a region, more than a city. Okay, and uh, so this is really, uh, let's see, where, uh, let's get there. There we go. Okay. Chapter 15, verse 1. What shocks you right out of the gate? Chapter 15, verse 1. The oracle concerning Moab. Surely in a night, Ar of Moab is devastated and ruined. Surely in a night, Ker of Moab is devastated and ruined. Now, footnote. You're, you're, in this, you're going to read all sorts of names that you've never heard of. And truth be told, I've never heard of them either. Okay. In fact, as I was looking at my, uh, my commentaries on this section, um, the commentaries don't know where these places are. They're somewhere in Moab, but nobody knows. We don't have any archaeological evidence, any historic evidence, but, but these are cities and locations somewhere in the region of Moab. But what's the point? In one night, these two key areas are going to be utterly overthrown. Moab is going to be undone in one night. Now, what's interesting is he's going to go on and explain, you know, everybody, this is really shocking, verse 3, in their streets they have girded themselves with, ac- with sackcloth, that means they're, they're mourning, on their housetops and in their squares, everyone is wailing, dissolved in tears, uh, Heshbon and Elah also cry out, their voice is heard all the way to Jahaz, therefore the armed men of Moab cry aloud, his soul trembles within them, everybody's mourning, everybody's grieving, everybody's in crying, you ready? Including their army. That's not good when soldiers cry, right? Why are they doing that? Because there's no hope. They're totally going to be destroyed. Now, flip the page. Look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. Look at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 16. And tell me, what is the offense that has brought such drastic consequences from the Lord upon their life? That's right. Have we seen that before? Where have we seen that before? What's that? In my life. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> we can all put our hand up. Yeah, it's me. Where have we seen it in Isaiah before? Ahaz. Where else? Yeah, the book of Isaiah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We've seen it in Ahaz. We've seen it described of Babylon. 
We've seen it described of Assyria. You see, this is what's going on here is Isaiah is once again pointing to the real problem here. The real plight is that at their core, these nations and peoples that are going to be overthrown are being judged. Why? Because in their heart, they are standing over who? The Lord. They are standing. This is the 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 issue of fallen humanity. We talked about it in Psalm two. People want to raise themselves up against God and do their own thing as their own God, as their own boss. And that is why judgment is coming. You say, of all the sin in the world, uh, God hates it all. He will bring judgment for it all. But the heart of it all is this prideful arrogance. Look at verse six. We have heard of the pride of Moab. An excessive pride, even of his arrogance and pride and fury, his idle boasts are false. Therefore, Moab will wail. Every one of Moab will wail. It's about pride. It's about raising up uh, their about raising up their uh, attempts against God to overthrow Him, to live above Him, to not submit to Him. To live autonomously. So Moab will be destroyed in one night. And and the sin of Moab that led to that is their pride. Now, here is the most amazing turn of events in this section. Look at Isaiah's response. Look at chapter 16, verse 9. Therefore, I will weep bitterly for Jazer, for the vine of Simba. I will drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and uh, Elilah, for the shouting over your summer fruits and your harvest has fallen away. Gladness and joy are taken from the fruitful field. In the vineyards also there will be no cries of joy or jubilant sounding. No treader treads out wine in the press, for I have made the shouting to cease. Therefore my heart intones like a harp for Moab, and my inward feelings for Kir Hareseth. So it will come about when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself upon his high place and comes to his sanctuary to pray, that he will not prevail. This is the word which the Lord spoke earlier concerning Moab. How does Isaiah respond to his own Delivery of judgment upon the Moabites. Yeah. He says, my tears are going to drench your cities. (laughs) So this is not like Isaiah grabs a tissue. I mean, this is like he is in turmoil emotionally because as he's giving this prophecy of judgment on his enemies... He's also grieving their plight, isn't he? You see that? That's interesting. Um, and I think this is definitely a, a pull the car over moment in our study because that's intriguing. How should we think about the judgment of our enemies? How should we think about the destruction of real threats to our country? To the gospel? How should we think about that? Let me just 
because uh, Isaiah actually develops this, and I want to I want to take a little bit of a bunny trail here. We'll come back and uh, we'll talk about Damascus here. Okay, um, check this out. Um, hold your place there. Turn in your Bible back to Deuteronomy 32. I think this is a theme worth chasing down a little bit here. So let's think about this. How should we think about the destruction and condemnation and judgment of our enemies? Listen to Deuteronomy. This is God speaking through Moses. And this is the song of Moses, right? You think about everything Moses has seen. He's seen the ten plagues in Egypt. He's seen the Red Sea parted. He's seen deliverance in the wilderness. He's seen God and Mount Sinai. He's seen the Ten Commandments given and then re-given. He's seen water from the rock. He's seen the quail and the manna. He's seen over and over and over and over again God's provision, God's blessing, and His deliverance over enemies. He's seen what God has done to Egypt and what He's done uh, to other threats that the Israelites have faced as they have wandered in the wilderness and as they have made their way to the promised land. And in chapter 32, uh, he writes a song uh, at the end of his life. Listen to what he says. Chapter uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. God is just. He is a just God. There is no injustice in him. Psalm 11 says the same thing, that God is perfectly just. There is no lack of justice in him. 7.11 says this, God is a righteous judge. And a God who has indignation over sin, so to speak, every day. So God is just. And we've seen in the book of Isaiah that a longing for justice is a very godly thing to do, right? Longing for justice. That's what we've seen. In fact, as as condemnation has come upon the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah and the surrounding nations, what is one of the indicting matters of evidence that God has brought against all of these nations. They are not ruling in justice, right? They are not protecting the poor. They're not providing for the needy. They're, they're uh, corrupted. They're, they're engaged in bribery and deceit and lying. And they, they live in injustice. And God says, that's wrong, and I'm bringing judgment against it. So God is a just God. Longing for justice for evildoers is a righteous desire. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 12? Uh, Terry will be there uh, soon. Um, but remember what he says there? Never take your own revenge, but leave room for what? Do, do, you, know the, do you know the text? If you don't, we can go look at it. Never take your own... When someone does something wrong to you, why should you not retaliate in judgment? Because you're playing God, right? Never take your own revenge, my brethren, but leave room for the wrath of God. And then he quotes the scripture. Vengeance is mine, God says. I will be the one to repay them. So it, when, when someone wrongs you, 
And that sense of justice wells up in you that says, that's not right. I need to do something about it. That is a godly impulse. That's a good thing. We, we don't, we do not want to live in a world where nobody cares about right and wrong. We do not want to live in a world where nobody cares about justice, right? That's a good thing. And you and I do that in our hearts because God stamped his image on our soul. And because he is just, we have a sense of justice also, right? The problem is, in our fallenness, we have forgotten that as that sense of justice rises up in our heart and we want to do something about it, we've forgotten that that's actually God's job. It's not our job to execute personal justice. Now, a footnote to that, the Bible does say there are jurisdictions that God has delegated that toward. So we can think about our law enforcement, our government, our police force, our military where God gives authority to a nation to execute a level of justice justice in a society. Okay, So we understand that's a delegated justice, and I'm not saying that's not right. That is very right, and it's uh, commanded by God to do. But what Romans is talking about is personal justice. You know, if, uh, if Nick wrongs me or I wrong Nick, we're not supposed to execute justice on one another. That's, that's not our job. If I commit a crime against him... Uh, the government comes in, the police comes in, and they take care of that to figure out if a crime is committed or not and if I need to be punished or how that all works. Right? That's how it works. So it's personal justice, personal vengeance that is being talked about in Romans. The impulse of justice is right, but executing vengeance is God's job. Okay, But longing for that is a good thing. But here's the thing, and, and this is where you really have to Make these things fit in your mind. If you're, if you're uh, back in Deuteronomy, uh, head back over to Isaiah, but go past Isaiah. Go past Isaiah into Ezekiel. And I want to remind you, you've probably heard these verses before. Uh, you may not remember where they're from. But look at Ezekiel chapter 18. Remember, Ezekiel and Isaiah are going to parallel one another in terms of the message that they're bringing to the people. Uh, they overlapped a bit in their ministries. Uh, but their messages are very similar. Listen to what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel saying the same things Isaiah is saying about uh, turning from God and justice and, and what's going to happen in a Redeemer and repentance. And in the midst of all that, that judgment is coming, that God is bringing his judgment, he's executing his judgment on his enemies, Ezekiel turns the corner and says, but I want you to remember this. Even in the threat of God's judgment, even in the execution of God's judgment, listen to what God really thinks. Chapter 18, verse 23. This is God speaking. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord. Now stop right there. Don't read ahead. Look up. What would you think the answer would be? in light of the message of the prophets, which is all shock and awe judgment, what would you think the answer might be? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. But look at what the answer actually is. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? And then he gives this little section that's so beautiful. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, does according to all the abominations that a wicked man does, will he live? 
All his righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered for his treachery when he has committed and his sin which he has committed for them, he will die. And yet you will say the way of the Lord is not right. But here now, a house of Israel, is my way not right? Is it not your ways that are not right? Doesn't that go right with what Terry's talking about? Right? What right does the, the clay have to say to the potter, I don't think you made this right. And so in matters of justice and mercy, we are prone to uh, really misunderstand this. But look at verse 27. When a wicked man turns away from his wickedness, which he has committed, and practices justice and righteousness, he will save his life. And that's the point that, uh, and we see this in verse 30. Repent and turn away from your transgression so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. God's saying, look at the end of the chapter, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. That's what God thinks. Will God execute justice? Absolutely. Is He a God of unflinching righteousness and and unhindered holiness? Absolutely He is. Will He bring every wrong to justice? Yes, He will. Either through the cross or through the final day of judgment. But that's not His heart. Not that He doesn't love justice, not that He doesn't love righteousness, but His heart's desire is that men and women would repent. Do you, do you feel that paradox? He loves justice. He loves what is righteous. He will bring judgment because that's right. That's good. But he longs for men and women to take advantage of the gospel, to take advantage of redemption. It, it does not please God in justice as much as it pleases him in redemption and salvation. And we say the same thing. If you just flip the page, chapter 33 Verse 11, this is not just an isolated verse. He says the same thing in chapter 33, verse 11. In light of what we just read, God tells Isaiah, go out and tell the people, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Do you hear the pleading of God, the heart of God behind that? Uh, and, and, you know, the New Testament says the same thing. Paul tells Timothy that, that uh, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So what does that mean for us? Okay, on your notes there, but God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but desires their repentance. What does that tell us? God is both a God of grace and justice. God is both a God of grace and justice. And we hear this in Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. Listen to those two seemingly competing attributes of God that actually harmonize and fit within the mind and heart of God. Verse 18, therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. You see that? He's a God of justice, but he longs to show compassion. He longs to show mercy. You get it? 
You know, Paul's going to say in Romans, God, in, the, in the gospel, God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And you know what? Here's a question. How can God be both? How can he show mercy to the guilty and wrath to the wicked? Right? How can he both be both just and the justifier? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. You've got to see this. When you're reading your Old Testament and you read God is merciful and full of justice and wrath and you go, that doesn't fit in my mind. I don't get that. And then what do we do? What's for lunch? And then we, we forget, right? We just kind of move on with life, right? You know, what, what, who, what game is playing tonight? That's what we do. But you got to get, when the Bible, especially the Old Testament, when it says God is just and he's a justifier, he's, he's a judge, he's righteous, he's also full of mercy and compassion. You and I are supposed to go, how? And the answer is, that's creating curiosity. That's creating interest. That's drawing us into the plot line of God's redemption so that as we hear about this coming Messiah and we see him, and what does he do? He bears the wrath and the judgment that we deserve. He takes our place. He is our substitute. You know the verse, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin in our place so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, right? And so all of this tension of the Old Testament, he's just and the justifier. He's righteous and merciful. He's bringing condemnation and grace. That tension, that, that incongruity, that struggle, when Jesus shows up and we see a substitute, that's how he does it. That is how God can be both just and the justifier. So when you read these words in Ezekiel, when you read in Exodus that God will show compassion and forgiveness and mercy, but he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, when you read the, the, this tension between a righteous God and a merciful God, all of that is building interest and pointing to the need for Jesus who will come to be the substitute. It's only in Jesus that God can be both just and the justifier. Does that make sense? So, so if you're tracking with me, if the New Testament never happened, Everything we learn about the character of God in the Old Testament is wrong. Right? Because without Jesus, that, those two character attributes that don't seem to go together, our God is a contradiction. Unless Jesus comes. Do you see that? I know this is heavy stuff. I know it's Sunday morning. It's BCD. Keith, this is not nice to us. We're tired today. I know. I know. This is great stuff. Only in the cross is God both just and the justifier. Now, 
Remember what, what, this, what started all this is Isaiah's own grief over the judgment of his enemies. Therefore, believers long for justice for wickedness, but also the desire, but also desire the repentance of the wicked as they respond to God's grace. That's the takeaway. That's what we see in Isaiah. Isaiah loves righteousness. He's delivering the message of righteousness. But even as he delivers the own message of the destruction of the enemies that have been impressing him, he's grieved in his heart that they would repent instead of be destroyed. I don't, when I say enemy, I don't know what comes to your mind. I mean, you say, well, I don't have any enemies, Keith. Or maybe you say, oh yeah, I got a bunch of enemies. Or, uh, you know, foreign enemies, domestic enemies. We think about our country, think about our nation. Maybe it's personal difficulties with people. I don't know what comes to your mind, but I think what Isaiah helps us to see here is a really important perspective. Do we long for the wrongs in this world to be right? Yes, we do. We ought to. Killing, injustice, taking advantage of people, the the sex slave trade that's just completely out of control right now. Dictators that are taking advantage and destroying other people. Babies that are bo- that are killed in the womb, uh, end of life. It's, it's a mess, guys. Just read the paper, right? It's a mess, and we Christians long for all that to be made right, and we ought to. But you know what we ought to long for even more? That those men and women repent and find grace and mercy and transformation in Jesus. And even when we see, uh, did you see the headline? Osama bin Laden's son was destroyed in a attack i think yesterday or recently do you see that saw that on the news last night master terror mind right behind so much terrorism in our country and in the middle east that's justice isn't it that's justice is that good yes it's good we praise god for that we long for those people to repent because that would be better Right? You see that? That's the heart of Mr. Isaiah. And that's the heart that we need to have as we think about our enemies. Okay? Let's stop right there. I'll let you go get your coffee early. Um, we'll uh, pick it up next week. Father, thank you for helping us to see this uh, dichotomy of sorts between your justice and your mercy. Thank you for Jesus and the gospel that are the reason in the triunity of God that you can be both just and the justifier. You can be both righteous, perfectly and completely, and also full of mercy and grace because of the work of Christ. Lord, I pray as we think about enemies, whatever those might be, that we would long for justice in this world, that that rights, um, that all wrongs would be addressed all wickedness and evil would be silenced and would be would would cease but even more than that lord we long for the repentance of people that your mercy and grace be shown to them as they repent and and trust christ in the gospel so lord help us to live with that tension to pray for others with that tension and um, like mr isaiah that we would both announce your message even of your coming judgment but we would weep and long that they would be shown mercy as they repent. Lord, thank you uh, for this, this reminder, this example in Isaiah. And uh, continue to give us grace 
as uh, we walk through these chapters together. In Christ's name, amen.